The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. So we come to Isaiah uh, 21, and it's been a fascinating week uh, for us as we've uh, looked at the ongoing struggle that our nation is having economically, which I mentioned last week. And it's fascinating to me to see people asking questions of refuge and shelter. And they're speaking financially, of course. They're looking for a shelter for their, uh, for their money and for their worldly possessions, something that will last, something utterly secure, something bulletproof. We already know, and we can tell them on the authority of Jesus Christ, there is no such place. That's why Jesus said, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We know that, don't we? As Christians, we know that. Don't put your trust, says the Apostle Paul, in wealth, which is so uncertain. The book of Proverbs says, cast but a glance at wealth and it's gone. It takes wings and flies away. Well, we've known that. Our treasure's in heaven. Amen? It's in Jesus Christ and the imputed righteousness of Christ. And there's no thief, there's no natural disaster that can take that away. But people have been using words like refuge and shelter especially. And uh, I think that's a fascinating thing. People looking, and they they look in the future, and they see a storm coming, and they're looking for a place of refuge. I think about uh, you know living in the in the Midwest in the Plains region where there are there are tornadoes that come, and you have tornado watches, and there'd be a, a siren that go off, and you go to your your uh, safe haven, maybe in the basement, or like in the Wizard of Oz, it's out across the the farmyard. Remember how Dorothy had to make her way across, and she barely made it down in the root cellar, and then she forgot Toto and had to go out and get, and that was it. I mean, she was then whisked away by the tornado, but she's looking for shelter. Or I think about in history in World War II during the Blitz in London when the Germans were bombing uh, London night after night after night after night, an onslaught. And at dusk, the siren would sound uh, warning uh, the coming of the bombers. And the natives of London would flee and they would run down into the subterranean areas of the, of the tube, they called it, or down in the, in the subway what we would call it, and, and they would spend the night there with total strangers, sometimes standing up all night, sleeping uh, side by side with somebody you never met, or they would drink tea together, or they'd sing songs, and in this way they had shelter from the bombing that was going on up above their heads, looking for shelter. And it's a biblical concept as well. Think about the world that then was in the days of Noah, when there was a storm coming, a flood, and for 120 years while the ark was being built, Noah preached that there was going to be a flood, that there was going to be a coming judgment, and that there would be a refuge, a safe place, and that if you entered that refuge, that ark that was growing ever larger, ever ever stronger, ever clearer, right in their their eyes, he was preaching that they would flee from the wrath to come. But I can tell you from the scripture, from the gospel, there is no safe shelter from the true storm that is coming. The true storm that is coming is not economic, my friends. It's not financial. It's not military through terrorism or any other way. It's not natural disasters. These things may come, said Jesus, but the end is still to come. They're just birth pains. Now, the real judgment is before Almighty God. 
the one who has pure eyes, holy eyes, and can tolerate no evil at all. I had a witnessing opportunity with a, a man on the plane. Woe to the person who sits next to me on a plane. All right? Well, I hope it's blessing. I, I'm really hoping that it would be blessing and we're not woe. But we have an opportunity. And I don't force anything on anybody, if, especially if they're wearing the headphones, you know, the big, thick Bose headphones. It's over. All right? Witnessing opportunity is done. All right? But uh, this was actually a great conversation. And I felt my primary responsibility was to make Judgment Day vivid to this man. To give him a vivid sense of the fact that someday he will stand before God and give an account. Is he ready? Does he have a shelter for that? Does he have a shelter for that? It was really a discussion of economics that led us into that. You know, you can get to the gospel from anywhere. But uh, what is the shelter? Where can you put your money where it's going to be safe? Answer, nowhere. All right, but where can you put your soul that will be safe? And the answer is Jesus Christ. Amen? He is the refuge. He is the shelter. The problem is, human beings are always casting about for some other place. It says in the book of Proverbs, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are kept safe. There's your refuge. Jesus Christ. Call on the name of the Lord. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You'll stand under the refuge of the shed blood of Christ and you will be free from sin. The real danger is the wrath of God. The judgment of God. And He has, by His grace, crafted a safe haven, a refuge called Jesus Christ. Amen. But we are always casting out, looking for some other thing, making some other plan. And the Jewish people back in Isaiah's day were no different. And so we're in the middle of the oracles of the nations. This will be my last uh, sermon on the oracles of the nations. When I get back from Haiti, I'll preach one sermon on ministry to the poor, and then we'll be going to the Gospel of Matthew. Sometime in the future, if God wills, we'll come back to the book of Isaiah. But as we've looked at these oracles, one after the other, we have seen how God gives these words of judgment to the nations. And, and he's got a lot of things going on. One thing is he's warning those nations of the coming judgment so they also will flee to him and be saved. But he's also speaking the, these oracles to the nations to the Jewish people. Why? So that they will not trust in these nations instead of God. That they'll not flee to Babylon as though the Babylonians are going to save them. And so it's a message of warning and of comfort to God's people, really. Look at verse 10. You can see right in this warning, this, uh, this oracle of woe against Babylon, look what he says in verse 10. O oh, my people, crushed on the threshing floor, I tell you what I have heard from the Lord Almighty, from the God of Israel. He's speaking to his people, his chosen people, and he's giving them a word of warning and of comfort. God's people are the point of history from God's perspective. However, God's people are crushed by history from the human perspective. And so today, Christians are like dust on the scales among the movers and the shakers of human history. We don't make much of an impact. But God has a message to his people crushed by the wheels of the nations. And that crushing, I think, refers to the twofold exile, the exile that's about to take place in Isaiah's day by the Assyrians. They're going to take the northern ten tribes and they are gone, 722 B.C. All right? But then, 136 years later, the southern kingdom of Judah would be exiled to Babylon. The Babylonians would come and take them, 586 B.C. And God's people were going to be crushed by the overwhelming wheels of the rise and fall of the Gentile empires. They're going to come and crush the people of God. 
Now, this crushing was no accident. It wasn't that God didn't notice what was happening. It wasn't that God was limited in his power, that his arm was too short to save. None of that. God was bringing it. He was bringing judgment on his own people for violating the covenant. And he uses here this agricultural analogy of, of being crushed on the threshing floor. And so what would happen is that wheat, at, at harvest, the wheat would be gathered together and they would, they would uh, drag a, a threshing sledge or, or cart over the grain and it would pulverize it and then they would take a, something like a pitchfork and they'd throw it up in the air and the wind would blow the chaff away. The lightweight would, would just blow away, but the heavier kernels would fall back down to the threshing floor. And you do this enough, and all you have left, for the most part, is wheat. The wheat has been separated from the chaff. And that's what God is doing. He's separating the wheat from the chaff. And the wheat, they, uh, it refers to the true believers among God's people. Those that genuinely, like Abraham, are trusting in God and God has credited to them as righteousness. The chaff are those that are Jews in name only. Uh, they really have never believed in God. They were idolaters. They worshipped other gods. And they will be blown away. And so Isaiah is giving God's people a message of encouragement and also a warning about their time under the domination of the Gentiles, under the boot of the Assyrians and the Babylonians. The encouragement is that God is sovereign over the nations. Things are not spinning out of control. Even when you go off into exile, God is still reigning. He's still ruling. And he's going to bring back a remnant to the promised land and reestablish them. God is still sovereign. That's the message of encouragement. What's the message of warning? Don't trust in Babylon for salvation. Don't trust in the Babylonians militarily. Now, what's going on? Well, again, when Isaiah, the prophet, was doing his work, Assyria was the big threat. And the Assyrians were evil, and King Hezekiah was against the Assyrians. And evil Assyria continue, continues to flex its muscles in the region to dominate those little nations. But in the east, a power is starting to rise. There's a city on the Euphrates, Babylon. has an ancient history already through the Code of Hammurabi and other things. It's got a history. But right now, it's a subject people under the domination of the Assyrians. But they're starting to become a little more powerful. And there's a, a young Chaldean prince, a king... A prince really under the Assyrian domination named Merodach Baladan, son of Baladan. And in Isaiah 39, the story is told of how this man, this Babylonian prince, sends envoys to King Hezekiah. Hezekiah, by this time, has seen the miraculous deliverance by an angel of the Lord, 185,000 Assyrian troops killed in one night. Also, uh, because of his pride, Hezekiah was struck with a, with a fatal illness. Isaiah told him to put his affairs in order, he's going to die. Hezekiah doesn't accept that. No, I'm not. And he cries and prays. And God graciously extends his life 15 years. Well, Babylon hears about all these things and they send envoys to congratulate Hezekiah on his military victory and his healing. He was equally responsible for both, don't you know? <laughs> by faith, by the power of God, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. What did he do? He got sick. He was surrounded by almost 200,000 Assyrian troops. That's what he did. And he prayed in both cases and God delivered. That's how he saves sinners, friends. Call on the name of the Lord. He'll save you. But so the envoys come from Babylon, from Merodach Baladan, and uh, Hezekiah takes them on a tour. Shows them everything. All the gold and the silver and all the stuff accumulated there. And the military strength that little Judah had. And the Babylonians were impressed. Very impressed. 
Note to self, lots of wealth in a little town called Jerusalem. We'll be back later. Isaiah said they're coming back. He gave a prophecy. He saw beyond. He saw to the day when the Babylonians would come and take Judah away into exile. This is what he said, Isaiah 39, 5 through 7. Hear the word of the Lord Almighty. The time will surely come when everything in your palace and all that your fathers have stored up until this day will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. And some of your descendants, your own flesh and blood, who will be born to you will be taken away and they will become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. A dire warning, the coming exile by the Babylonians. But Isaiah sees beyond even that. Oh, he sees far beyond that. He sees the day when Babylon itself will be crushed. When Babylon itself will fall, and that's this oracle here, Isaiah 21. Babylon is going to fall. And this is a message of encouragement that Babylon will not reign forever. And so Isaiah's mission here is to persuade his people, Hezekiah and the others, don't trust in Babylon. Don't put your trust in the Babylonian uprising from the east. Babylon's going to judgment, just as he had said already concerning uh, Egypt in, in Isaiah 19 and 20, don't trust in Egypt. Don't put your trust in these nations. Trust in the Lord, because those nations, they're all under judgment. Trust in the Lord and fear the Lord. The Lord is the one you should fear. Isaiah 8, 13 and 14, the Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. And he will be a sanctuary. What is a sanctuary but a place of refuge? That's where you go hide. You don't hide in, in Babylon. You don't hide in Egypt. You don't trust in some Gentile army that you can make an alliance with. Trust in the Lord. He will be for you a sanctuary and a refuge. And so the Lord is the one you must trust. Again and again, Isaiah says this. Isaiah eight seventeen. He says, I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. I will put my trust in him. I will invest in God. <laughs> That's what I'm going to trust in. I'll put my trust in God. Or again, Isaiah 25, 9. In that day they will say, Surely this is our God. We trusted in Him and He saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in Him. Let us rejoice and be glad in His salvation. And by the way, the word His will become very, very clear on Judgment Day and in eternity future. Amen? It was His salvation. He saved us. We trusted, but He did the saving. So he gets the glory, and we get eternal joy. Isn't that enough? I think that's sweet. And so it is the future. We trust in him. The nations, then, are nothing in God's sight. Isaiah 40, verse 15. Surely the nations are like a drop in the bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. The nations are as nothing to God. More than that, frankly. The nations are all under God's judgment. They're not nothing in that sense. They're all under God's judgment, every one of them. Isaiah 34, 2. The Lord is angry with all nations. His wrath is upon all their armies. He will totally destroy them. He will give them over to slaughter. That will be very clear when the Lord returns at the end of the world and all the nation's armies are together against Christ to fight against Him. And He will destroy them completely. And so therefore the message, stop trusting in man. Isaiah 2.22, stop trusting in man who has but a breath in his nostrils. Of what account is he? That's the message here. Now, we're talking about Babylon. Look at verse 1. An oracle concerning the desert by the sea. This is a bit of a tricky word game here. Isaiah was brilliant. He's a brilliant guy. 
He would have been in Mensa, I think. And so he's doing a little bit of a word puzzle here, and you have to kind of unravel it. I wouldn't be smart enough. I didn't know Hebrew well enough. But the commentators tell us that you unravel it and you end up with Babylon. We're talking about Babylon here, the desert by the sea. Now, the people are tempted to trust in Babylon as an ally. But uh, Isaiah says it's actually a desert by the sea. Now, this is a bit strange because uh, Babylon isn't actually by the sea. It's actually a number of many miles inland. All right, but it's called the desert by the sea. What is he doing? He's saying there's nothing there for you, O people. The desert is a place where there's nothing there. There's no life. You can't live there. You have to bring your water with you. You, have to, you can't survive in the desert. And the sea is very much like it. It's a different kind of desert. Water, water everywhere, but not a drop to drink. If you're out in a rowboat, your first problem within 12 hours is where you're going to get enough water. There's no place you can survive. It's a deserted place. Babylon is not your future. That's what he's saying here. And furthermore, Babylon is about to face the whirlwind of God's judgment. Look what it says, verse 1. Like whirlwinds sweeping through the Southland, an invader comes from the desert from a land of terror. Impending destruction of Babylon, it mentions here. The language speaks of a windstorm coming from the desert. I think that's called a shirako, you know, a dry uh, sandstorm coming, a big one. And it's going to erase Babylon. He's speaking about an invader coming to destroy the Babylonian Empire. And this is the way of the world. Babylon will be betrayed by its allies, its partners in crime, as it were. Look at verse 2. A dire vision has been shown to me. The traitor betrays, the looter takes loot. Elam, attack. Media, lay siege. I will bring to an end all the groaning she caused. All right. Isaiah calls it a dire vision. The rise and fall of the world is repulsive to watch. It's disgusting. It's violent. It's selfish. It's materialistic. It's ugly. Therefore, Daniel sees these empires like beasts, ravenous beasts, coming up out of a turbulent sea. It's a dire vision. The particularly cold way that the spirit of Babylon works is this. See, Babylon, rising up, makes allies of Elam and media. And together they overthrow Assyria. That's how it works. And so they're partners together in that. But then Babylon, more powerful than the others, dominates them and subjugates them like the Assyrians did. Now Babylon's in charge. Babylon sweeps on down, takes over Palestine. They are the top dog, king of the hill. But they won't last. They won't last because now the traitor is going to turn and betray them. And the looter that's been looting with the Babylonians is going to loot Babylon. Who are we talking about? We're talking about the Elamites and media, the Medes. They're coming. They're going to judge. And so basically the history of the world is what goes around comes around. The way you treat your neighbor, that's the way your neighbor's going to treat you. That's how it works. Habakkuk 2.16 says it this way. Now it is your turn. That cup you gave to your neighbors, now it's your turn. The cup from the Lord's right hand is coming around to you. Drink and be exposed. What goes around comes around, as Jesus put it in this way, Mark 4.24, with the measure you use, it will be measured to you and even more. So the groaning that Babylon caused will come to an end, and he's going to use their subjugated now allies to rise up. These peoples are going to rise up, and the Medes are coming with the Persians, and they're going to destroy Babylon. That's what he's saying. Now here, in the midst of this oracle, comes an incredible response. This is Isaiah's response as he's looking at this oracle. Isaiah was a visionary prophet. And I think his mind is filled with visions of what the fall of Babylon is going to look like. And it was overwhelming. Almost he couldn't, he couldn't stand it. It was so terrifying. 
Look at verse 3 and 4. At this my body is racked with pain. Pangs seize me like those of a woman in labor. I'm staggered by what I hear. I'm bewildered by what I see. My heart falters. Fear makes me tremble. The twilight I long for has become a horror to me. He is overwhelmed, get this, at the destruction of the people who exiled the Jews. How do you figure that? He knows that the Babylonians are going to come and exile the Jews. And now he sees a vision of them getting crushed and destroyed, talking about the Babylonians, and he's overwhelmed. It's like he can't even look at it. He sees with clarity in visionary form the night that Babylon fell, what it would be like. Men, women, children, sleeping infants, slaughtered in their beds. He sees it. It's the very thing he already told us in Isaiah 13 would happen. Speaking of the, the Medes... Their bows will strike down the young men. They will have no mercy on infants, nor will they look with compassion on children. Babylon, the jewel of kingdoms, the glory of the Babylonians' pride, will be overthrown by God like Sodom and Gomorrah. And so he's looking at this vision inwardly in his mind, and he can't handle it. It's so overwhelming to him. He has a visceral reaction. His body is racked with pain. Pangs like those of a woman in labor rack his body because of the vision that he's seeing. This is amazing, isn't it? This is compassion for the lost. Compassion for those who are going to suffer this coming judgment. Now, God's work of judgment is not his delight. He doesn't delight in it. Any more than he literally delighted in the suffering of his son on the cross. Jesus' suffering on the cross is not God's delight. What is God's delight is the effect of Jesus' suffering on the cross. For the joy is set before God the Father, he pours out wrath on his Son. He doesn't enjoy the wrath pouring out part. Neither does he enjoy the clearing of the threshing floor so that the kingdom can be built. There's nothing delightful in the mind of God in the crushing and judgment of sinners. Instead, he beckons again and again, calling on them to repent. So it says in Ezekiel 33, 11, Say to them, As surely as I live, declares the Sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die? So he's calling out to sinners. God yearns to be gracious. Isaiah 30, 18, The Lord longs to be gracious to you. He rises to show you compassion. That's the God of the Bible. In the midst of all this judgment, God rising to show you compassion. And his name is Jesus. That's the compassion he wants to show you. Jesus, moved by compassion, reaches out and saves. And so Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. The apostle Paul mourns in Romans 9 over the Jews who are persecuting him. And so Isaiah is racked with pain at this image of the destruction of Babylon. Well, this destruction comes in. And uh, amazingly... The judgment interrupts a party. Party's over. <laughs> the party's over. Look at verse 5. They set the tables, they spread the rugs, they eat, they drink. Get up, you officers, oil the shields. I, I love that. That's Isaiah giving Babylon military advice. <laughs> what are you doing partying? How does that fit? You're about to be destroyed, and you're having a party. How did it work? Well, I think they're within the walls of Babylon. Remember, I began this sermon talking about refuge and secure place and shelter. They thought they had it. Babylon. Pretty imposing. Herodotus tells us the walls are 150 feet high. You could, 
you could drive a chariot of four horses at the top of the wall. It was huge. The city had plenty of food. They could outlast you if you're besieging them. It was a secure place. I get the image that the soldiers of Babylon are up on the walls toasting the Medes and the Persians. Do your best. We're going to go party. See if you can get in here. They were absolutely cocky confident. So they're having a feast. They're enjoying it. There's something innate, something inside us that wants, that yearns for pleasure. We want to be happy. And you know where I think that comes from? I think it comes from God. Because He is happy. Our God is in heaven. Psalm 115, verse 3. He does whatever pleases Him. He's a happy being. Our problem is that we pursue it like idolaters. Materialistically. Sensually. We pursue it wickedly. There's nothing wrong with a yearning for pleasure. But these folks, they pursue it like pagans, rubbing it, rubbing God's nose in their idolatry. This is the night of Daniel 5 of Belshazzar's feast, when Belshazzar orders that the gold goblets from the temple be brought in, and they use these goblets, God's cups, to toast the gods of bronze, iron, wood, and stone they cannot see or hear or understand. That's what they're doing while the Medes and the Persians are besieging Babylon and proving that their refuge is nothing of the kind. Oh, it's a, it's a wicked drive we have inside us. And even the Jews, in the very next chapter, Isaiah 22, when they are under judgment, when, when, when wrath is coming on them, when they are besieged, this is what happens, Isaiah 22. Just look one chapter over, Isaiah 22, 12 through 14. The Lord, the Lord Almighty called you on that day to weep and to wail, to tear out your hair and put on sackcloth. But behold, there's joy and revelry, slaughtering of cattle and killing of sheep, eating of meat and drinking of wine. Let us eat and drink, you say, for tomorrow we die. The Lord Almighty has revealed this in my hearing. Till your dying day, this sin will not be atoned for. He said that to the Jews. God's chosen people. You should have mourned. You should have fasted. You should have prayed. You should have taken it seriously. But instead, you pursued life as it always has gone on. Just like it's always gone on. And Jesus said it would be like this. Like in the days before the flood. People eating and drinking, marrying and giving marriage. Right up to the day that Noah entered the ark. And they had no idea what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. So it was also with the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah in the days of Lot. Right up until the fire and brimstone starts coming down, they're pursuing lustful pleasures. They're pursuing the old way. And so, Belshazzar's sinful feast. And you remember the end of Daniel 5. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain. And Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. Oh, what a final verse that is. The writing on the wall has been fulfilled. Babylon has fallen. And so, how does the city fall? Well, I've mentioned it numbers of times in my sermons before. They diverted the Euphrates River. They crawled under the wall. And with a city drunk or asleep, they opened up the gates, just like the story of the, of the Trojan horse. They came in, they opened it up, and then they go running through the sleeping, drunken city and kill everybody. That's how it happened. And all that Babylon needed was to be alert and take Isaiah's ancient advice, 150 years, 200 years before that, just take his advice, 
and get up officers and oil the shields and get ready for battle and you win. But they wouldn't because God had given them over to judgment. And he used their own pleasures to do it. That's how it worked. And so Babylon is falling. Jeremiah gave the clear prophecy on how it would happen. Jeremiah 51, 37 through 39. This again, 70 years in advance. Babylon will be a heap of ruins, a haunt of jackals, an object of horror and scorn, a place where no one lives. Her people all roar like young lions. They growl like lion cubs. But while they are aroused, I will set out a feast for them and make them drunk so they shout with laughter, then sleep forever and never awake. I don't know if it could be any plainer than that, friends. Jeremiah 51, 39, he said how he would do it. He's going to set out a feast and they would get drunk and they would die that night. And so judgment has come. Now, in Isaiah 21, the scene shifts from Babylon to a watchman, perhaps in Jerusalem, waiting on the walls for news. And so the watchman's up on the walls and he's waiting for news. Why? Well, I think this is what's gone on. By the time that the city of Babylon has fallen, by that time the, the Medes and Persians have conquered the whole empire. It's just the city that's left. And so I think all of the outpost cities that were under the Babylonian empire are waiting for news. What's happening? What's happening? What's happening? Has Babylon fallen? What's going on? Etc. So they've got watchmen up on the walls and they're waiting for news trying to find out what's happened. And so the scene shifts. Look at verses 6 through 9. This is what the Lord says to me. Go post a lookout and have him report what he sees. When he sees chariots with teams of horses, riders on donkeys or riders on camels, let him be alert, fully alert. And the lookout shouted, Day after day, my Lord, I stand at my watchtower. Every night I stay at my post. Behold, here comes a man in a chariot with a team of horses and he gives back the answer. Babylon has fallen, has fallen. All the image of his gods lie shattered on the ground. And so, the people receive the news. The watchman's on the wall waiting for news. Now, nowadays, you don't have to have a watchman on the walls. You know, the guy who walks around, two o'clock and all is well, three o'clock and all is well. That's over. Okay, now you've got your Blackberry, okay? So if some major thing happens in some part of the world, you get a little red light and you say, oh, what is it? Oh, uh, it's an email from CNN because you set that up. When anything big happens, they'll tell you, they'll let you know because you are so important and you need to know. I think that's fascinating. How important can we be? I need to be 24-7 in touch with the events of the world, okay? Giving you the news you need. I always wonder about that. Why do I need that news? But at any rate, there it is. We can find out immediately when a city like Babylon falls. But back then, they were waiting on the walls, looking for some messenger coming, looking for a chariot or something coming, running with the news. What's going on over there in Babylon? And watchman is told to be fully alert. It could come any moment. And at last, he sees the chariot coming. And it comes. And the answer comes back almost breathless. Babylon has fallen, has fallen. It's done. Babylon is gone. And then focus on the religion. All the images, Bel and Marduk and all those false gods that were so alluring, all those images are crushed on the ground. Oh, so this is a warning. Don't trust in Babylon's gods. Don't put your trust in Bel and Marduk. And if the modern gods are called the Almighty Buck or your career, or whatever the Babylonian idols are today, don't trust in them because all of those things are getting crushed on the ground when judgment comes. 
And so God gives this message. Don't, don't share in Babylon's fate. Look at verses, verse 10. O oh, my people, crushed on the threshing floor, I tell you what I've heard from the Lord Almighty, from the God of Israel. I, I told you, I tell you what God Almighty told me to tell you. That's prophecy. God spoke into my head these words, and I'm telling you what God, who created heaven and earth, has told me to tell you. Babylon is going to fall. It's coming down. And so therefore, a warning. Come out from Babylon and be separate so that you will not share in her judgment. Now the rest of the chapter really just enhances the same point that's already been made. There are two other kingdoms, Edom and Arabia. Neither one of them are a refuge either. Both of them could be a refuge. You know, you run out of Babylon and you go to Edom. Maybe that'll be a safe place. They had a really high, you know, lofty mountain fortress. Maybe that'll be a safe place. Or then the Arabia, you can go out in the desert and, and hide in the desert. Nothing of the kind. There is no safe refuge. Look at verse 11 and 12. An oracle concerning, concerning Duma, that's Edom. Uh, someone calls to me from Seir, Watchman, what is left of the night? Watchman, what is left of the night? The watchman replies, Morning is coming, but also the night. <laughs> if you would ask, then ask, and come back yet again. These are the kind of verses that make Isaiah a mystery. You read it, it's like, why is that in the Bible? I don't get it. What does it mean? Well, it's an oracle against Edom. And Edom felt secure. Read about it in Obadiah. But they felt like they were safe. They were up in a lofty mountain perch, safe and sound. All right? But they've got watchmen on the walls waiting to hear about Babylon, right? They're waiting to hear, has Babylon fallen? You know, what's left of the night? There's like, night is tough. It's dark. Are we going to die tonight like the Babylonians did? And they're waiting. And, and it's like, how much is left of the night? It's like, you know, and the minutes are like hours. It's the longest night of your life if you think it's the last night that you'll be alive. And the, wa- the watchman comes back. It's like, it's almost dawn. Morning is coming. But there's another night, too. <laughs> Come back again tomorrow and we'll do this whole thing all over again. That's just waiting for judgment is all it is. And the message here concerning Edom is don't flee to Edom. Edom's going to be judged as well. What about Arabia? Can we go to Arabia? Seems good. Go hide in the desert. Who's going to want the desert? Well, look at verses 13 through 17. An oracle concerning Arabia. You caravans of Dedanites who camp in the thickets of Arabia, bring water for the thirsty. You who live in Tima, bring food for the fugitives. Who are these fugitives? Get to that in a minute. They flee from the sword, from the drawn sword, from the bent bow, and from the heat of the battle. That's who the fugitives are. This is what the Lord says to me. Within one year, as a servant bound by contract would count it, that means very accurately... Counting day by day, within one year, all the pomp of Keter will come to an end. The survivors of the bowmen, the warriors of Keter, will be few. The Lord, the God of Israel, has spoken. All right, so the Babylonians run for their lives, whatever's left of them, and they go out in the desert to their allies, the Arabians. Who are these people? Well, the Dedanites are descendants of Keturah, Genesis 25.3, Abraham's, Abraham's concubine. They were desert dwellers, Arabians. Tima and Keter are also names of the tribes of Ishmael. They're also descendants of Abraham. Their trade caravans have fled from the swords of the Medes and Persians, and now they're camping, hiding in the desert. Babylonians come running from the Medes and the Persians, looking for a shelter. The refugees flee out to the desert where the Arabians are. What's the word? Don't go there. Because judgment's coming there as well. I'm telling you, within one year, the Arabians will be wiped out as well. What is God doing? <laughs> what is he saying? He's saying there's no other refuge. It's like, which dry hill during Noah's rainstorm should I go to? Which one should you? What would you recommend? Well, that one's pretty high. Let's go to that one. Answer, none. 
There is no other refuge. (laughs) Not Edom, not Arabia, not Babylon, not Egypt, not Assyria, none of them. Nothing earthly can save us. You know why? (laughs) Because God is our problem. Our sins are our problem. The only refuge there ever has been, the only refuge there ever will be, is Jesus Christ on the cross, His blood shed, the empty tomb of Christ. There is your refuge. Flee there. Flee there, oh friends. Flee there. Maybe you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Maybe you've never trusted in Him. Flee to Christ. Call on the name of the Lord. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are kept safe. That's where you go. Are we living in Babylon? Is this this Babylon? Yes. Yes, it is. Does that mean everyone involved in the government is wicked? No, Daniel was second in charge or third in charge in Babylon. There are godly people involved in government. But what are the marks of Babylon? Arrogance, defiance, idolatry, wickedness, pursuit of sensual pleasure. There are two aspects of Babylon, military strength and Tyre, the trading with the nations, both of them in in, uh, Revelation 18. That's Babylon. Are we living in Babylon? Well, if so, then don't you think the Bible ought to let us know how to do it? How shall we live in Babylon? Well, first and foremost, find what your true refuge is. And it is Christ. Listen to Galatians chapter 1. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age. Read Babylon. Jesus gave himself to rescue us. He is our refuge. Trust in him. And I don't just say that if you've never trusted in Christ and you came here today to be saved. Praise God for that. Trust in him. But I say that to Christians as well. Keep fleeing to Christ in your mind. Every time you're getting anxious, you read something in the news or, and your heart's getting anxious, flee to Christ. Flee to Christ. And he's not telling you he won't bring you any difficulties. He's telling you that when you pass through the waters, he will be with you. When you go through the fire, you'll not be consumed. That's what he's telling you. He's actually going to bring you through those things. But you're going to make it through. And you're going to be saved. That's what he's telling you. And learn how to live in Babylon. First of all, understand it's going to be destroyed. It's coming down. Everything visible is temporary. Everything. Now, Jeremiah told the exiles of Babylon to seek the peace of the city. Jeremiah 29.7 Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, then you will prosper. Fine. Seek Seek the peace of the city. But uh, can I urge you that you would focus on this kind of peace? Therefore, since we have been justified through faith in Christ, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Seek that peace for the city, not material prosperity. And furthermore, wasn't it Jeremiah who later in his same prophecy told us that Babylon was going to be destroyed? <laughs> so the people that go out and like plant gardens and do different things in urban renewal projects based on Isaiah 29, or Jeremiah 29.7, look... If it's a ministry and it gives you a chance to share the gospel to interested onlookers, do it. But if you think that the gardens you plant are eternal, they're not. Judgment is coming on Babylon. Understand that. And finally, a message of holiness and purity. Live a holy life. Isaiah 52.11 says, Depart, depart, go out from there. Touch no unclean thing. Come out from it and be pure, you who carry the vessels of the Lord. And this from Jeremiah 51, 44 and 45. I will punish Bel, that's a false god, I will punish Bel in Babylon and make him spew out what he has swallowed. 
The nations will no longer stream to him. And the wall of Babylon will fall. Come out of her, my people. Run for your lives. Run from the fierce anger of the Lord. And then there's this in Revelation 18, 1 through 4. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven. He had great authority and the earth was illuminated by his splendor. And with a mighty voice, he shouted, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a home for demons and a haunt for every evil spirit, a haunt for every unclean and detestable bird, for all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her, and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. Then I heard another voice from heaven say, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues. And then 2 Corinthians 6. 14 through 18. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing and I will receive you. I will be a father to you. And you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Since everything is going to be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be, said Peter? You ought to live holy and godly lives in Babylon. Can you not live in Babylon? No, you cannot not live in Babylon. You do. Well, what are you going to do about it? Seek refuge in Christ. Allow him to be a wall of protection spiritually around you. And like Isaiah, grieve for the perishing around you. Reach out with the only message that can save, the gospel. Close with me in prayer. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.